Today we finish up our sermon series, which we've called Fresh Faith. We've been going through the book of Malachi, and we've come to the very end of it. So if you have your Bible, let's go ahead and open them. We'll put the words on the screen as well, but always good to have a Bible in your hands and to be able to make notes in it. We're in Malachi chapter 3, verse 13, through the end of the book. Hear the word of God. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. May God bless the reading of his word. May God bless us as well. Today, what I want us to do, and to move through it quickly, but is to take a look at arrogance, reverence, and trust. Arrogance, reverence, and trust. So let's begin with arrogance. We've talked a little bit about it, about the time in which Malachi wrote, the time in which he served as a prophet before the Lord. We know the story that that God moved his people up out of Egypt, up out of slavery and bondage, and he moved them into the promised land. And then after the time of King Solomon, after they had been a nation, one nation, uh, after uh, um, the time with Solomon in, uh, in the rule of king, that they divide into two nations, the northern nation of Israel and the southern nation of Judah. And in the 8th century BC, the northern nation of Israel by that time had just been making uh, choices against God's best. And so God, because he had established a covenant with them saying, listen, uh, uh, you be my people and I'll be your God. I'll be your God and you be my people. You, you follow the ways that I have provided for you and And if you do, there will be blessings, and if you don't, there will be consequences, or as the Bible talks about them, curses. 
Well, the consequences came in the Assyrians. God allowed the Assyrians to come down and put an end to the nation of Israel. In the 6th century B.C., we find that the same thing happened to Judah. Judah had come to that place where they were no longer keeping the covenant. And, and so the covenant, which God will keep, had its blessings and its consequences. And the consequences came. And the Babylonians came in as God permitted them and took the folks from Judah into exile, at least a number of them. And then the 70 years goes, go by and, and the people front who were put into exile are brought back to the promised land and, and they have this time of trying to, what does it mean to be God's people? And one of the leaders was Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, through the working of Nehemiah, they, they came to renew the covenant before God. And then Nehemiah goes back up to Babylon and there's this period of time before Nehemiah returns when the people of God are in this position that um, we have Malachi speaking into. And what we are introduced to in our text is that <clears throat> there are three different groups. There are the quote-unquote winners, there are the whiners, and there are the worshipers. The, the quote-unquote winners, the, the whiners, and the worshipers. We meet the first two groups when we take a look at verse 13 through 15. We see the words there, your, your, wor uh, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, and here we hear from the whiners, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Commentators point out that that what these whiners, these complainers before God, that, that they were going about the, the practices that God had called them to, but it wasn't internalized. They were expecting, God, we're doing the things you're, you told us to do, but we're not getting the blessings you promised. And they were complaining about that. They, they were doing the things, they're, they're walking around, they're, they're, they're um, uh, uh, they're acting as mourners. They're, they're repenting of their sins, but, but they're just doing the actions and not yielding to the relationship. These are the whiners. They go on to complain. They, they say, and now we call the arrogant blessed. Now they're talking about the quote-unquote winners, the people who seem to be getting ahead in their culture. They say, and now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. They seem to be winning. Even though they're doing the opposite of what God has called them to do, they seem to be winning. The whiners wanted the blessings. The blessings that God had promised to the whole of God's people, this corporate promise. And they go, wait, isn't this a quid pro quo relationship? I pat your back, God, you pat mine. Where is the exchange of blessings? Arrogance. Arrogance, and you can look up the de definition for yourself, but it is explained as an attitude of superiority. An attitude of superiority that it's manifested in an overbearing manner. And we know that, don't we? Know, we know that by experience. No matter how hard an arrogant person tries, even if they attempt to feign humility, it just seems to come out of their pores. An attitude of superiority manifested in overbearing manner or in presumptuous claims. 
and, and assumptions. At its heart, arrogance stems from an inaccurate view of self. Do you remember that song by Wright Fred said? And this goes back a good number of years. This goes back to 1991. And it really it, it made its way up the charts. It was very, very popular. Um, uh, the band actually happened to, a couple of members of the band actually happened to own a gym. And, and at the gym, there were a number of models that would come and work out at the gym. And, and so they were kind of poking fun at those models who were working out. And, and among the lyrics of that song, Too Sexy for My Shirt, are these memorable lyrics. Too sexy for my car. Too sexy for my car. Too sexy by far. Too sexy for my hat. Too sexy for my hat. What do you think about that? I mean, that's just gold, right? <laughs> that Shakespeare's going two thumbs up right now. How, how do you top that kind of poetry? But it's this inaccurate view of self. In fact, it comes out in at least two forms. We can talk about two different forms for this. One is, yay, me, and the other one is, woes, me. It's possible to have two things that are the same thing and yet kind of different. We're used to that. We know that there is something called ketchup. It's red and kind of sweet tasting. And we know that there's something called mustard. It's yellow and it's spicy. They're very different, and yet they're the same things. They're condiments. You use them for the same type of things. You put them on hot dogs and hamburgers. And it turns out when we think about arrogance, there's this kind that goes, yay, me. And a kind that goes, woes, me. Let's take a look at the yay, me kind first. If this is our position of arrogance... It tends to be our belief that life should always go my way. Even if that means that I question God and God's authority and God's wisdom and, and God's covenant. And, and I'll question all those things because my bottom line is that life really should work out for my benefit all the time. We might make a statement of, I will live according to God's plan when I feel like it. I'll live according to God's plan when I find it to my liking. And if I don't, then I won't. In other words, I'm going to live for my glory. We may not say it that way, but we make choices. I'm going to live for my comfort. I'm going to live for my accomplishments. I'm going to live for my enjoyment. Do you ever feel this way? Do you have this feeling of, gosh, I really want to do the things that work out well for me? You know, one of the things we find is, is that as, as we feel this way, as we begin to live out of this kind of arrogance, yay me, life is about me and my comfort and my enjoyment, we might find ourselves rejecting God altogether. God, I just don't have any space for you in my life. I, I don't like what you teach, and so um, I, I'm just going to reject you entirely. It may be that we don't reject entirely, but we choose to ignore. God, I acknowledge you're there, and I like some of the stuff you're saying. But there's some stuff you bring up, ugh, I just don't like it at all. And I'm going to choose to ignore those things. 
I'm just not going to pay any attention to them. I'll pay attention to the stuff I like, but not to the stuff I don't like. Or maybe we are a little bit more nuanced. And because we really want to live for ourselves, yay me, that we just compromise with God. And so we say stuff like, God, uh, uh, why don't I meet you halfway? Or, or God, I know that's your thing. Why don't I meet you a quarter of the way? Why, why don't I meet you an eighth of the way? That's good enough. These would be the people that the complainers, the whiners, are complaining about. In fact, in verse 15, the whiners call them, and now we call the arrogant, blessed, evildoers. Not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. They're evildoers. Those who put God to the test and escape, they are the arrogant. If that's one kind, let's look at the other kind. The other kind of arrogance comes out as, woes me. Life never seems to go my way. God, I question your authority. I question your power and your promises and your covenant and your wisdom and your love. Do you ever feel this way? Do you ever have that feeling of, you know, hey, listen, I look around and, you know, those people who don't go to church, life seems to work out okay for them. You know those people who are living together before they get married? Well, it seems to go okay for them. You know those folks that indulge themselves, that put themselves first? They seem to be doing all right. Maybe we've caught ourselves feeling these kind of feelings, these kind, having these kind of thoughts. These would be the complainers. There's that place in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says to people, he goes, hey, listen, don't look uh, for the speck in somebody else's eye. First take a look at, at the log in your own and remove it so you can go to the other person. These folks are, are looking at the other people and going, look at what they're doing. They're so arrogant. They can't even see their own arrogance. Even worse, they're turning to God and saying, God, you've got a log in your eye. Arrogance. If that's arrogance, let's spend some time looking at reverence. We pick it up in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and, his, and esteemed his name. Those who feared. We've talked about this word before. To fear God is to revere God. By reverence we mean honor or respect, felt or shown. It's the showing of deference to another. Arrogance says, honor me in my greatness. Or honor me in my pain, but focus on me. Reverence is to honor God in His greatness and to focus on Him. At its heart, reverence is having an accurate view of God. It's not yea me, it's not woes me, it's yea God. Now be careful. 
Because it's possible to go around and, and say things like, yay, God, or, or to position ourselves among other people and say, yay, God, to sing songs in which we say, yay, God, but secretly in our hearts, we're really whiners or choosing to be worldly winners even at the cost of doing that which honors God. What I would have us consider is that, that if, if we want to build this um, reverence in us, that we would consider these things recognize. That, that to show reverence is all about recognizing God and God's wisdom and God's power and God's covenant and God's love. To recognize it, to acknowledge it, that it exists, it is there. God, you are who you say you are. To recognize it. And then once we've acknowledged it and recognized it and said, I see it, that we would submit to it. God, I not only acknowledge that you are worthy of all honor, but I submit myself in reverence to you, in fear before you, that you are the living God and I am not, that we would submit ourselves to God's power and wisdom and covenant and love. And that as we submit, then, then we would choose in the midst of that posture of submission that we would then trust, that we would trust God's wisdom in his power, in his covenant, in love. In our text, there is a word given to the worshipers. It's a word of hope and promise. We picked this up at the end of uh, uh, verse 16, it talks about their names would be written in the book of remembrance. Whether it's actually a book or not, it's not the big issue, but it's, that, it's the statement that God acknowledges. He's watching. He sees. He knows. He knows those who turn their hearts over, who surrender themselves in response to God's love toward them. He says, they shall be mine. I shall spare them he tells of a day, when that great day, when, when there will be such clear distinction. He goes, listen, trust me in this. There will be such a clear distinction between those who are righteous and those who are wicked. It may not seem like it now, but that day is coming. He says it will be a day when the arrogant and the evildoers will become stubble. And those who are the worshipers. They will have healing and joy for those who revere God. Arrogance. Reverence. This idea of trust, I want to lift it up as a way forward. We have been talking in this sermon series on six practices for overcoming apathy. And it may seem like it's a strange, how do you practice trust? But it's something that we can give ourselves to each day. And as we build this trust, as we, as we focus on developing this trust in God, that it can keep us from having a lack of concern about God and God's ways. And so we've talked about bring, your, bring God your best and listen to true instruction and guard yourself and fear the Lord and give generously. So today we add to it, trust God and God's plan. You know, the science behind getting back into shape is known widely. 
We know how that works out in this uh, coming out of a pandemic, those of us that have put on extra pounds or, or may have given ourselves a, a pass because, um, you know, we just need to uh, deal with stress and we don't want to get up and work out. Now we find ourselves, I am out of shape. Okay, this is confession time, right? And, and, and the thought of having to get back into it, and there are obstacles. Even though we know what works, there are obstacles that keep us from being successful in it, from trusting the science behind getting back into shape. The obstacles are things like feelings. You know, when you wake up in the morning and you just have that feeling, this bed is really comfortable. And I could get out of it and go work out, but why would I want to do that? There's the obstacle of the transformation process itself. It's not quick. Results can be slow to come by. If we're losing a pound a week, that, that it can take many, many, many weeks to get where we want to go. If we're trying to build lung capacity, the transformational process can seem long and extended. And we feel like after the third time, shouldn't I already be where I want to be? And then we also know there's the obstacle of life patterns. Life happens. Just because I may want to get back in shape doesn't mean that the rest of the world cooperates. Bob, take time. We won't demand anything of you. You need to do this. These are the same obstacles we find when we go to trust God. Sometimes our feelings get the better of us. Do I really want to trust God in this, or is it just easier to go my way? We find that God's transformational process, well, that can be a lifetime. Why, why do I want to participate in something that takes so long and that I have so little control of? In life patterns, people all around us are making other choices. Why don't I just be like them? I thought just for our time here, maybe we could consider these steps in building trust. Steps for building trust and making it a practice in our life. The first thing I would throw out to us is that we would replace our core filter. We would replace our core filter, a, a, a mental choice. That rather than asking, how does life align with me and my plans? That we would ask, how does life align with God and God's plans? You know, in our homes, we change the filter in the furnace so that it works more efficiently. And, and for us, we have these filters. We go in every day. We're looking for how to evaluate those choices that we have. And oftentimes our filter is, how does this align with me and my priorities? And what if we were to change that filter, to consciously to think about it? We wake up each day, we go through the day, we enter a meeting, we enter a conversation, we turn to our spouse, to our parents, to our children, and we ask instead, God, how do these next words align with you and your plan? for my life. The second thing we could work on is that we would focus on our relationship with God over and above the rewards that He promises. Listen, the greatest gift we could ever hope to give from God, we already have. We have the relationship. This year we've been talking about, I belong. The, the greatest comfort in my life is that I belong not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The relationship itself 
is the greatest gift we'll ever receive. We might look at ourselves and compare ourselves to other people and think, well, they sure seem blessed, or, or they, they, they have it all together, or look, God has blessed them with children. Why doesn't God bless me with children? Or God has blessed them with financial resources. Why doesn't God bless me with those financial resources? And it's a choice not to look at all the other things, but to focus on the relationship. The third thing we might work on then is that we would learn and live God's Word. Moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, decade by decade. We include these words as part of our in, up, and out. that, That to move up is that we are transformed as we learn and live God's Word. The habit of doing that moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, it builds that trust in us. There are learnings from Scripture that I am just now discovering. I've been a Christian a long time. I've taught and read so much of the Bible that, and about the Bible that, that, that even now I continue to learn. And God continues to use His words. There are things that I do in my life now that I couldn't even conceive of doing 30 years ago. We learn and live God's Word hour by hour, day by day, week by week. The fourth thing I would throw out there is that we would hang out with others who trust. We would hang out with other worshipers. Look at verse 16. When those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Listen, they're not having the dialogue with the whiners. They're, they're not interacting with, with the quote-unquote winners. They're, they're a distinguished group. Now, they're not exclusively only talking with the others, but, but Malachi paints a picture of these three different people groups, the, the quote-unquote winners, the, the, the whiners, and then this third group, the, the worshipers, and they talk with each other. And the choice, the intentional choice to hang out with others who, who trust to, to find time to be with people who build up instead of tearing down, who point us toward God instead of pointing us away from God, who encourage us rather than discourage us. Trust. Trust as a way of moving from arrogance to reverence. Malachi, uh, the book of Malachi begins in um, verse 2 where God says, I have loved you, says the Lord. It really is the story of the Bible, God choosing to love his creation. I have loved you. There's a a word that Jesus gives to the church in Philadelphia in the book of Revelation. And just listen for the same thing being said. We'll end with this. Hear these words. I know your works, Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know, what you, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. These are the worshipers. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, by the way, not the best name for your church, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. 
because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him. You get the sense of the book of remembrance here even. Never shall I go out. I I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I have loved you, says the Lord. May he find us as worshipers, people who show him reverence, who trust in his ways. Let's pray together. Father, we know our capacity to give in to the ways of this world, to become worldly winners. We know our capacity to be whiners, to complain against you that your way just isn't as good as other ways. God, would you so work in us that we would be everyday worshipers, that, God, we would revere you, that, God, we would, we would practice trust in you every single day. Meet us in our need for you. Meet us in our weakness that we might then say, yay, God, yay, God, that we would say, yay, God, in so many ways every single day. To you be the glory. We pray this in Christ. Amen.